from Boise, Idaho and Idaho Education News. It's Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. I hate to break it to you listeners, but Daniel Tiger will not be joining us for this week's <laughs> podcast. I mean, we, we tried, we efforted, we did everything we could, but you know, Daniel Tiger's a busy guy. But Stay with us, because there's a lot to talk about this week, a lot, a lot of interesting stuff to get to. Yeah, let's get right to the news, Kevin. One of our top stories this week, you took a closer look. Uh, you worked with our summer intern, uh, Cam, and took a closer look at all the kindergarten in Idaho, which is really uh, ramping up, and a lot of school districts are using some of the money uh, from the Literacy Initiative pushed by Governor Little and the legislature. Um, but tell us what you found out, what the numbers are saying, and kind of what the trends are. Well, first of all, a big shout out to, to Cameron Arnson, who was our, our intern this summer, who undertook this project and did really the heavy lifting on it. What we wanted to do on this was to try to put some numbers to the trend towards all-day kindergarten. We wanted to get a sense of how many districts and charters have adopted all-day kindergarten in some form. And that's where Cameron comes in. He, uh, he did a survey, uh, reached out to 161 school districts and charters across the state, on a variety of topics, but what I focused on in the story this week was uh, what he found in terms of all-day kindergarten and pre-K. The numbers aren't complete because, you know, we weren't able to get responses from every district and charter. But a significant chunk, But, but for we sure. got, a, definitely got... A, Meaningful. We got well over 100 responses out of 161. And what we found was really interesting. Um, we found that 16 charter schools and 81 school districts, 81 out of 115 school districts, are offering all-day kindergarten to at least some of their students, and in some cases, all of their students. Um, what was maybe even more interesting was how they're paying for it. Um, we found that the majority of those uh, districts and charters are using some kind of general funding to, to cover the cost of all-day kindergarten, because you have to remember, the state does not directly pay for all-day kindergarten. Districts and charters get funding for a half a day of kindergarten, right. and if you want to do all-day kindergarten, you can, but you have to figure out how to pay for it. And in many cases, districts are finding money within their own budgets to, to cover the cost of all-day kindergarten, and you can do that in a lot of different ways. I mean, you can use discretionary funding, you can use some Title I federal funding. Supplemental levies if you have it. Right, and that's, and I was going to get to that. Okay, um, sorry. <laughs> getting there. Um, so 10 districts... and are using supplemental levies where they went to voters and said, if you'll approve this property tax levy, we'll put it towards all day kindergarten. So you got 10 districts there. You have, and this was interesting too, you have only eight districts and charters who are charging tuition. who are expecting parents to pick up the added cost of all day kindergarten. And, and I don't know, I, I thought that might have been a higher figure, but very, uh, very small figure you know, out of these 97 districts and charters that we identified with All Day K, only eight are passing the bill directly to parents. Now you get to the literacy funding, and this is where it also is interesting. 14 districts and charters are using money from the state's literacy initiative to pay for All Day K. Um, we've talked so much about this literacy initiative, and that was really kind of the impetus for doing this project. Right. We, we knew that with the state putting more money into literacy, $26 million this year, with the idea that districts could use the money for all-day kindergarten, we kind of wanted to get a sense of, well, how many are doing exactly that, who are putting this can, this literacy money into all-day kindergarten, because we knew that there were a few. 
it gives us a, a little bit more of a sense of the importance of that literacy funding as a kickstart into all-day kindergarten. Yeah, it's really an interesting topical, timely story. I'm glad that you and Cam uh, teamed up on this. And this was basically Cam's summer. Yeah. Uh, and I remember sitting in the office as he made some of these calls and sent out some of these emails trying to reach folks on what was their summer break. And he worked very hard on this, but super timely. Uh, like you said, uh, the impetus behind looking at it was Governor Little and the legislature's literacy program, the infusion of the extra cash. But it's coming at a time where you know, kindergarten is still optional in the state of Idaho. And I remember talking with the late former governor, Cecil Andrus, about all the efforts that he had to go through just to get to the state to approve optional half-day kindergarten uh, during his administration. I think and that was part of the bargain back terms. in the day was, well, if we do something, can we make it optional? And would that you know, be the way to get it through the legislature? And to, to connect it to today's political debate, um, we are seeing Governor Little's K-12 Education Task Force meet this summer. Uh, they're going to meet again at the end of this week, but one of the proposals they're kicking around and may formally recommend is all-day kindergarten. Right. And so it's it's really interesting that you have this report showing some 80-some uh, of, of our public school districts going to all-day kindergarten when that may be a recommendation uh, coming out in the next few weeks from the task force. May or may not. It's, it's something right. they've talked about, though, and, and something that there's a lot of interest in. And, and, and that... That politics of the moment really is important when you look at this issue because, as you mentioned, the task force is talking about all-day kindergarten. And they're not the first to come along and propose this. If you go back to last fall, the Idaho School Boards Association, their members, school trustees from all over the state, passed a resolution urging the state to fund all-day kindergarten. Now, that won't be cheap if it ever happens. Right. Um, the price tag that ISBA attached to it back last fall was about $52 million. So. You know, this, this is not an inexpensive undertaking, but you can see that there's a good deal of political momentum behind the idea of moving towards all-day kindergarten. And, you know, and that, that was part of what we were trying to get at with this uh, project and with this story was to maybe compare what's happening with all-day kinder as opposed to pre-K. Right. Where the state is not funding pre-K. The task force is not talking districts about and it. Charters and the and districts and charters really have to come up with their own funding for it, for it. And to, to kind of summarize our numbers, what we found is that uh, you have about you, know, you have about 80 districts and charters across the state who are offering pre-K in some manner to some students. But a big asterisk here is that in most cases, what is being offered is uh, pre-K for special needs students. And that is federally funded. Districts do get uh, federal funding to provide um, pre-K to special needs students. So that's what's happening in the preponderance of districts uh, that we're talking about. We can only find about 28 uh, districts and charters that offer what could be defined as a universal pre-K. Um, and in most cases, uh, they're actually trying to find ways to do that for free. Um, in what we found mostly in really small rural districts, you have administrators who have figured out a way to do tuition-free, pre-K, universal for all for all kids. But really, you know, a lot, lot smaller undertaking at this point compared to all-day kindergarten. And you know, 
the, the politics of the moment are pretty stark when you compare the momentum for all-day kindergarten versus the kind of lack of momentum for pre-K. Pre-K is not happening. It's not going it, anywhere. It, it, there just is no, you know, important critical mass uh, behind pre-K. I mean, you have advocates for pre-K, and you sure. have advocates in the in the education world, you have advocates in the business community. And you have for years, but you don't have advocates in the governor's office, the state superintendent's office, the legislature, to the point that... Uh, there's a proposal to move forward with any kind of funding and any kind of support whatsoever. Even Governor Little, who has voiced support for pre-K in, in theory, in concept, has not pushed the idea, has not pushed for a proposal in his first nine months in office. And again, with all this push in, in literacy, it's all focused on K through three, and it provides uh, the option of using literacy money for all-day kindergarten. It does not provide the option of uh, going to, to pre-K. So we, we get into all of that in the story. We, we kind of get into the politics of it, what these numbers mean, and what it might uh, portend going forward into 2020, the legislative session, and beyond. So there's, there's a lot there in the big picture. But I also was able to spend some time this week uh, looking at one school that has made the jump to all-day kindergarten. This is a school in the CUNA School District, Reed Elementary School, their second year of all-day kinder. I had the chance to sit in on the class for a little bit on Wednesday, uh, talk to their teacher, talk to the superintendent, uh, talk to a parent who had uh, her son go through all-day kinder in, in CUNA last year and really compared what she saw with her younger son as opposed to her oldest, older son who went through uh, what basically came down to half-time kindergarten in CUNA a few years ago. Everybody in the district is pretty encouraged by what they're seeing so far. Uh, they're pretty excited. They think that in the long run, this is going to be an investment that's going to pay dividends with, with kids as they go through kindergarten. Uh, talked to a first grade teacher who is starting to see students who went through all day kindergarten last year. Uh, and she's seeing a difference. She thinks that they're further ahead in reading than she would have expected and what she has seen with first, uh, first graders coming into school. Not as much summer melt. They, they've held on to what they learned in, in kindergarten. And the test scores, you know, wanted to kind of test, the, sure. uh, test this against the numbers. Reed Elementary is a school where uh, reading scores are lower than the state average. Uh, kindergarten reading scores are, are below the state average. And those fall kindergarten reading scores, I mean, how kids come in prepared um, Reed Elementary does lag behind the state average, and th those numbers are, are pretty profound when you look at them uh, for last fall. But what they did see was the growth from fall to spring was a little bit ahead of the state average. So they started to pick up a little bit of ground in kindergarten, as a, and you know you got to think that that's a result of the all-day kindergarten and the extra time and the extra intervention that, that comes with uh, with more classroom time. So those first-year numbers back up what the district officials are saying, that they feel like this is starting to make some inroads and starting to help kids catch up. Well, I think that's one of the interesting things that will come out of this and will be an interesting, we're in an interesting place to look at this, but as we look at these 80-whatever school districts that are moving to all-day kindergarten, we'll be able to look at this cohort of students and have large sample sizes of data where we can look at student achievement and how they do on their um, IRI tests and how they do on the standardized tests as they move through the school system. And so that'll be one of the interesting things about this as we move further 
end of this approach, taking a look at some of that data, particularly once we have larger sample size and a few years worth of data, uh, to really get a sense of, of what's happening and, and whether it's moving the dial and whether schools are happy with it and they're getting the, the results that they envision and that they, they hope for out of their investment. And maybe one final footnote on this before we move to, to the next topic, and this kind of loops the two stories together and really kind of focuses on, on the funding aspect of it. Sustainability is a question that, that came up at least uh, a couple of times as I was putting this uh, package of stories together. And CUNA's funding for what they're doing in Reed Elementary School is interesting. Now, this is another instance of a school that's using literacy dollars to fund all-day kindergarten. That's where most of their money comes from. The rest of it, uh, they, they, hired a, they hired a position for all-day kindergarten through the supplemental levy. Um, but the, the bulk of the money for all-day kindergarten in CUNA is coming from the, uh, the literacy dollars. And that means two things. It means that the intervention that Reed Elementary has to provide for third grade students who are lagging behind in reading, third grade teachers are really having to pick up the slack and do that you know, in addition to what they normally do. And, and Wendy Johnson, the superintendent in CUNA, acknowledges that and says, yeah, we're, we're really leaning on our third grade teachers. We're expecting them to do more with, with less or, or with, with no increase in resources with the hope that a couple of years down the road, those third grade teachers aren't going to have as many students to worry about right. and work on getting caught up. Um, if, if all day kindergarten does what the district is hoping to see it do, those third graders are going to be in better, better positioned uh, when they get there. So that's one aspect of it. But the other aspect, you know, as Superintendent Johnson was talking about the funding, she said, you know, the literacy money is kind of tied to student performance and it's kind of tied to student need. You know, the right. more students who aren't reading at grade level, the larger share of money a district or charter gets. So on the other hand, if they improve dramatically with their test scores, the less, funding is going to go down in the less future. Less money from the state for all-day kindergarten. So, you know, there, there's a bit of you know, a calculated risk here for, for a district to, to jump into all-day kindergarten and, and fund it. But... Yeah, you know, the message that, that comes through when you talk to the folks in CUNA is that they're they're invested in this. That they're all in on the idea that this is going to pay off down the road, and uh, they've made some they've made some calculated trade offs to try to, to to start with it. So it was interesting to get sort of a snapshot from one school that's made this decision and why they've made that decision and what they're seeing. So we'll have both stories at idahoatnews.org, so you can check out the big picture, but also a snapshot from CUNA. All right. Big thanks to Cam. Big thanks to you yep. uh, for working on that. Like I said, super timely. And it fits right in with the political discussion that is going on all yep. across the state right now. So great information. And it should be very useful to task force members and legislators to take a look at your report and see some of these numbers because I think it is absolutely going to inform that discussion. Let's move on. Let's get caught up with a story that we've alluded to here on the podcast the, uh, the past week or so. Uh, your, your chance to sit down and talk to Sharon Reberry, the new superintendent in the Middleton School District. She's got her hands full. Yeah, it's an it's, uh, interesting story that I wrote, published earlier in the week about Sharon Reberry, new superintendent of the Middleton School District. Sat down with her, talked with several of her colleagues in education, 
Um, but yeah, just real quickly, the, the to get everybody up to speed here, obviously Middleton has gone through a considerable amount of controversy and growing pains over the last couple of years. Uh, remember back to last Halloween when several teachers were photographed and these photographs were posted on district social media channels where they were dressed in stereotypical Mexican clothing, pic pictured with a depiction of a border wall. Uh, this, this created national headlines. Uh, initially, staff members were suspended. There was an investigation. They were reinstated. Uh, but it divided the community, and it was sort of this national controversy. Aside from that, uh, the immediate past superintendent, Dr. Josh Middleton, uh, resigned, left uh, at the end of the school year over the summer, and said that there were some unnamed officials within the district that created a, a bad work environment. They've also seen a handful of bond issues fail. I think there are a couple that failed in 2018. This is a growing district. And it's a not, recall election, right? Uh, a recall election last month. A recall election just last month, and, and three trustees survived the recall. Uh, but the results show that the community, uh, which is located in Canyon County, about 25 miles west of Boise, is still very divided. This is a... Uh, Sharon Reberry has a lot of experience in education. She's been a classroom teacher. She's been a building principal. She's uh, worked at the State Department of Education under former superintendent... Marilyn Howard from a few administrations ago, worked for the Caldwell School District, been a federal programs director, but this is her first position as a superintendent. And I sat down with her and she's super excited about her, her new job. And she felt like Middleton School District felt like home for her. She grew up in the Twin Falls area. She's taught in Kimberly. And so she's really excited about this position and, and is bringing a positive attitude uh, but is choosing to look forward and, and is not looking backward and addressing some of the controversy and some of the things from when she's not there. But education is very much in her blood. Interestingly, uh, she's the third generation of teacher, of educator in her family, and her daughter is the fourth generation. Uh, but Dr. Reberry's parents taught, her grandparents taught, aunts and uncles taught, her daughter now teaches. And so she comes from a family of educators and said, you know, her whole life, this is always the path that she envisioned. She always saw this happening, couldn't have imagined anything else. Um, and, it, and I think that, you know, it's just at the very beginning of her, of her tenure here. And so at the point that we had sat down just before Labor Day weekend, um, I don't even think she'd been to a, a full board meeting yet uh, or really sat down with the leadership team to talk about strategy, to talk about managing growth and, and student achievement. And so very initial parts of her tenure here, but she's extremely excited about it. The other thing that I really jumped out at me in my reporting of the story is that although she is a first-time superintendent, she has absolutely enthusiastic support from some of the top educators in the state. Some of the... Marianne Rannells. Marianne Rannells, uh, who Dr. Reberry described as a mentor. When I called Marianne Rannells, the superintendent of West Ada, the largest school district in the state, uh, who I think is our national superintendent of the year candidate right, right. now. And reigning state, uh, state school district uh, superintendent of the year. So Dr. Reberry said that Dr. Rannells is, is a mentor of hers. And when I called Dr. Rannells in West Ada, she said, I would be more than happy to brag about this young woman to anybody who will listen. Uh, she said she has a positive attitude. She's focused on student achievement. She's focusing on, she's a team builder. She doesn't use a top-down leadership approach uh, she believes in teamwork and collaboration and, and coaching. And, and, and Dr. Reberry Sharon said something similar to me when I asked her about her goals for the Middleton School District. She said, 
it isn't just what I think is superintendent. It's what the community thinks. It's what our parents think. It's what our educators think. It's what our school board think. It's not just me. And so she also has a lot of enthusiastic support from Kobe Dennis, mm -hmm. the new first-year superintendent of the Boise School District. They actually did a lot of their advanced coursework together. I think it was an education specialist degree that they were both working on at the same time. They were even lab partners on some research projects. And Kobe Dennis said he's extremely excited uh, that they're both coming in as first-year superintendents at the same time. And even though they don't work in the same district, he's excited that she got the job in Middleton because that means that they can work together through these regional superintendents conferences. Mm -hmm. I think it's the Southern Idaho Education Conference. Right. Uh, but they're going to be able to meet monthly and share best practices and work with policymakers. And, and this might come into play during the legislative session. Right. Those Treasure Valley area superintendents, and we've seen it before, they work together. Yeah, very They kind of lobby together on a lot of issues at the state house. So, uh, so those relationships, we, we've seen that play out in the past. Yeah. Uh, but Sean Rebray, a lot of experience in education. Uh, this is kind of the next logical step in her career. And it's a big step, uh, going from a teacher, then a principal, administrator, uh, working at the STE, federal programs director, to now becoming a superintendent. Uh, she feels like her whole career trajectory has been leading up to this point, and she's very excited about it. But, uh, you know, we've talked about some of the issues in Middleton and the trustee recall and the previous superintendent leaving. After only two or three years on the job with certainly a bad taste in his mouth, it's going to be a challenging situation, but she does appear uh, to have the attitude and the support uh, to go in there and, and to start making a transition. And I think she's really focused on listening and learning, particularly this first semester, and, and working on building back trust and uniting the community mm -hmm. in Middleton. That's really kind of what, what shined through uh, in my article. But if you're a Middleton family uh, or if you teach out there and if you want to find out a little bit more about the new superintendent, what she's excited about, what makes her tick, um, what she reported about the first couple weeks on the job. I do have that profile. I think it was published Monday, so it's been a couple of days if you want to scroll down on the homepage. But we've got her picture there and her name. It's Dr. Sharon Reberry. It's the Middleton School District's new superintendent. And uh, just another example, we've done a lot of these where when new superintendents take over during the summer, uh, particularly in prominent roles, we like to kind of sit down with them and do a profile introduce them to the community. You did a similar yeah. article about Kobe Dennis in Boise, who we mentioned. Uh, so that's all there. If you want to find out a little bit more about that district and meet the new superintendent there, find out a little bit about her and her approach and how yeah. she'll handle things this year. Yeah, another new face in education circles, so you can get to know a little bit more about her by reading reading the story from this week. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, at least one more topic that, uh, that we want to get to this week, and that's the... Uh, well, you, you looked at some levies uh, yeah. this year, but it's a little bit different format. These are not the kind of levies uh, that go before voters. What did you look at, and what do the dollars add up to? Right, and this is a levy that kind of, I think, uh, flies under the radar oh, yeah, with, a lot of, with a lot of folks, with a lot of patrons. It's the emergency levy, right? It's, it's the emergency levy, and you know, as the name would suggest, it's uh, designed to allow school districts to respond to growth. I mean, if you want to get a, a sense of the cost of growth in your community, this gives you a sense of what that, that cost of growth re really comes to. Districts that see enrollment increases, or, well, technically increases in average attendance, yeah, the, average first attendance. The, the, the first few days of the school year, can qualify for these levies. 
they don't have to go to voters to get approval for these levies. So it's a little bit different than a supplemental levy, and it's certainly different than a bond issue. Um, we've been tracking these for several years, and I've uh, created a spreadsheet because, you know, that's what I yeah. really love, love me some spreadsheets. And what I've done is I've tracked these emergency levies really over the past decade. The bottom line this year, what we found is uh, about $11.7 million worth of emergency levies are being collected around the state. And that's the highest figure I've seen in, in a decade. Uh, it, it's up a little bit. And where is this money being collected? Well, you know, look at your usual suspects for, for growth in Idaho, and you'll see a, a good chunk of the money uh, being collected in those communities. West Ada, largest district in the state. Growth is an, is an ever ongoing yeah. issue in West Ada. The largest emergency levy in the state comes to $3.9 million to, to handle what they're projecting as an increase of about 700 students. So what these districts are doing with these emergency levies is hiring or retaining staff, uh, picking up classroom supplies, uh, computers, desks, whatever it takes to accommodate more students. Um, CUNA, we talked about CUNA earlier, also a pretty big emergency levy of close to $1.4 million. Uh, Valley View, a growing district in Canyon County, has a $1.3 million levy. As I said, in most cases, these are fairly quiet. You know, they just sort of happen, and there's a whole lot of attention paid to them, which is part of why we track them. We want to let people know what are, what's going on here with these emergency levies. One exception to that under-the-radar aspect, the Bonneville School District. The timing very much ruffled some feathers out there. It, it, it did, and our Devin Bodkin has been tracking that. He's been tracking a lot of what's been going on in the Bonneville District and the controversy surrounding Bonneville. So on... August 28th, trustees in Bonneville approved an emergency levy of $2 million, an even flat $2 million, which was almost the maximum that they could have taken. They, they, they shaved off, I think, about $40,000 from the cap, which is based on in attendance. The higher increase in attendance, right. the more money you can right. certify. $2 million emergency levy approved the day after voters rejected a bond issue for, for new schools. That's where the controversy really kicks in. Yeah. Uh, the opponents of that bond issue are also upset with the district for collecting the emergency levy and uh, staged protest at the, uh, the Bonneville School Board meeting on Wednesday night. Um, yeah, worth noting with Bonneville, they've been collecting an emergency levy now every year for at least a decade, as far back as I've gone uh, looking at the data. They've collected one every year. Now, $2 million is a pretty big emergency levy. I think it's the biggest they've collected in that time. But Bonneville's been growing every year. They've been collecting an emergency levy every year. But the timing, in light of the uh, the failed bond issue, in light of um, controversy surrounding a, a buyout for the former superintendent, yep. um, decision to hold off on hiring a top administrator to help pay for that buyout, there's a lot going on in the Bonneville District, and there's a lot of angst surrounding the Bonneville District. So a $2 million emergency levy just sort of adds some fuel to that fire. Yeah, it certainly does. Uh, and, and that's going to continue to burn, uh, it, it seems like. But a, a good report. But like you said, these really flew under the, the radar to the point that maybe a lot of people wouldn't have known that these emergency levies were even being collected unless they really watch 
their local school board agendas or attend those meetings or work in the district offices. I think it's something that the public really probably isn't aware of because we've even seen how supplemental levies that land on obscure election dates fly under the radar. This doesn't even require any kind of public participation at all. And, and so it really, you know, shining a light on this and adding the totals up, it might have kind of gone unnoticed if it wasn't for this report. And so I really appreciate and, that. And I'll, and I'll brag on this as a team effort. I mentioned that Devin Bodkin has been following the, uh, the situation in Bonneville. Uh, Randy Schrader, you know, who combs uh, school board meeting minutes and agendas to, to get a lot of these details that sometimes are, are hard to find, he unearthed one of these emergency levies just on Wednesday, just after I'd written the story yeah. and I asked you to edit it. Um, Randy uh, sent me a message saying, well, I found another one. Uh, so I asked you to, well, give me, give me a minute to add this to the, the roundup. These are not easy to track down. I'm not trying to, uh, you know, you know, pop out our chest here or anything, but these are not easy to find. I mean, th this is a pretty obscure process. Uh, and, you know, I think that's part of the reason why I think it's important for us to do this, because we are talking about a significant amount of money. And I, and I do get that this is a reaction to enrollment growth in the moment. So I understand the mechanics of this. This is one of those rare cases where a local government can impose a, a property tax without having to go to voters. I think it's designed to be a response in real time to a real need. But at the same time, I think transparency is important here because we are talking about a you know, pretty significant chunk of money. Well, yeah, two million here, three million there. You know, all of a sudden we'll be talking about real money at yeah. some point. But growth is an issue that the state is going to have to contend with. And then this isn't new, uh, but we always hear about how Idaho is one of the fastest growing states in the country. That's not new either, but it adds up and there's a cost. And you see the cost in these emergency levies, but also something we talked about on the podcast last week when we talk about the drawing down of the rainy day fund, spending it down by $30 million last year, that state education rainy day fund, PSIF, enrollment growth was a big part of that. And so Growth comes with a cost, and that's something that the state's going to have to come to grips with. It, mm -hmm. It's an issue that will keep coming up, and, and we're just giving you illustrations and examples of, of where the cost comes in uh, and, and, and the cost to bear. And so it's something that we'll stay on top of, um, but the issue of growth isn't going away. And this is just another area where we see the cost, where we see people have to pick up the tab um, to deal with this. No, it's, exactly. So if you want to find out if this is, uh, if a district in your neighborhood has collected an emergency levy, go to idahoidnews.org. We have the numbers uh, from this year's uh, round of emergency levies. All right. I think that gets us through the big top stories that I wanted to cover this week. Obviously, there's a few things over at the homepage, idahoednews.org, that we don't always have time to talk about. The latest on master educator premiums. The latest on master educator premiums. Here we are, coming closing in on the middle of September. I talked with the State Board of Education spokesperson today. Uh, we're recording this podcast today early on Thursday, and they're close. He said there's a handful of outstanding master premium applications that are being reviewed by third parties. They're checking the artifacts, and that they think they're close, and they still hope to award the premiums approximately mid-September, which we're almost there. Uh, and after that, uh, they're going to notify all 1,400 applicants, whether they receive it or not. 
They're going to notify them of their status, and then after that, the money will be distributed to school districts for distribution and local payrolls. So we're close. close. Don't have an exact date yet, uh, but we think we are pretty close. Um, And so that should be coming. We'll obviously continue to update that. Uh, We'll get you final numbers once we know it uh, of how many of the approximately 1,400 will receive the premiums, how much the state will pay out, uh, and then when those payments will expected to be made. Uh, so continue to watch the homepage for that. And then I mentioned we're recording a day early on Thursday so that I can travel over to Pocatello on Friday, normally the day we record, but I'm going to be covering what could be the second to last meeting of Governor Brad Little's Education Task Force. Uh, we're getting closer and closer to seeing what the recommendations are. So just almost as soon as we quit the podcast today, I'm going to hop and hop on the road and head over to Pocatello so I can be there in the morning uh, to cover that meeting. So you can also look probably 5, 5.30 p.m. Friday uh, and, and find out what the task force did if you're interested in following yep. that. And, you know, stay with us all through next week because we'll have the latest on anything that happens in education policy and education politics. Uh, check us out and, and keep an eye on the homepage. Keep an eye on us on Twitter and Facebook to to get alerts along the way. Yep. We'll be back next week with another brand new edition of the Extra Credit Podcast. We always have a lot of fun breaking down this ever-complicated intersection of education policy, education politics. But uh, have a good week. I'm Clark. Have a good week.